Welcome to The Edge by MGR with your host, David Gill. Hey everybody, welcome to The Edge by MGR. David Gill here, bringing you the new Thursday episode, new edition of The Edge. On Tuesday, I announced that we are doubling the amount of podcasts we're doing, or at least I am this week, so I'm starting Tuesdays, Thursdays. This is the first of the Thursdays. So just so everyone knows real quick before I get into it, the Thursday format will be a bit more of a... Uh, variety topic format and Tuesdays will remain the kind of editorial op-ed like focus on a single thing whether it be uh, marketing strategy or tech whatever like on Tuesday I talked about Amazon for 20 minutes uh, but this one is going to be more of a broad strokes thing so anyways let's get into it it's time for the news all right, so real quick in some consumer electronic news before we get into other stuff. Uh, the new iPhone 11, or I think, I mean, iPhone 11 is what we're calling it for now, uh, leaks came out yesterday or today. Um, and there's going to be two versions, a $1,000 version and a $700 version. So they're continuing their new business model, or maybe not new, but kind of uh, business model of the last few years of basically a higher priced premium version and a lower price version. The key difference is that a thousand dollar version will have a six and a half inch OLED screen similar to the uh, iPhone 10, which as someone who owns the iPhone 10, the screen is incredible. It's true black. Um, if you haven't seen an OLED screen, I recommend you go to your local Best Buy electronic store and check out a OLED TV or iPhone screen. Uh, so you know what I'm talking about with the blacks. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the screen is just incredible quality. And the $700 version will come with an LCD screen, the old-style iPhone screen before they came with so iPhone 7, iPhone 6, that type of screen. So still good, just not the super, super high quality. Uh, the kind of other interesting news is that there's going to be five colors, blue, red, green, or not red, blue, green. I don't know. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Uh, I'll put a link in the description to the more details but yeah five colors that's kind of unique for apple normally they don't do a whole lot normally it's like black white and gold or something like that so that's kind of interesting anyways that's it for the consumer electronics let's talk about self-driving cars there's a lot of self-driving car news and talk recently um, a lot of it actually has been about issues that self-driving cars car engineers are facing in trying to get to full what's called stage five autonomy uh, stage five autonomy meaning zero human intervention acquired so you can actually have like for example a semi truck drive across country and there's not even a person in it and it's just shipping goods right that would be an example of stage five autonomy there's one through five um and i think really what the issue is it comes down to more expectations than progress significant progress is being made but i think even more significant promises have been made and that's kind of the main problem here many companies and uh, advocates have been pushing for 2019 2020 this next couple of years to be where we see a transition to like stage five cars on the road and I'm not so sure. Listen, I'm all for self-driving cars. I can't wait, especially for day-to-day -day commuting. Um, I think they'll be fantastic. They'll give people their time back. I've been an advocate of self-driving cars for many 
I guess, years, months, whatever, years now. Um, and I've done podcasts about them before. But I think it's unrealistic to say that within the next two years, we'll see fully like no driver cars, especially in the US at least. But what I do think we'll see within the next two years is what's called like stage three and stage four self-driving cars, meaning these vehicles can drive themselves for long stretches without human input or intervention. Um, but just you need to take over when it kind of like you have to do something a little different. So like an example would be you get on the freeway during rush hour traffic, you go into autopilot mode and you just chill out, you use your phone, you read a book, you take a nap, whatever. And then when you're getting to your exit, uh, right, you just chill out for 30 minutes and then you get to your exit and then, okay, let me take back control and kind of drive here. But just for like bumper to bumper traffic, kind of going straight lines, following a lane, that's very simple stuff or not. I shouldn't say it's simple. It's still very complex to the engineering and coding behind it, but it's much more simple than driving on like surface streets and maneuvering a lot. So stuff like that, I think we definitely will see within these next couple of years, no doubt in many, many uh, like regular cars and self-driving cars, but we're still very far away from stage five, like not a person in the car as far as development and engineering goes of making it so that these cars work and are safe and are not flawless, it's going to be impossible to have a flawless car, but you know, much better than human drivers. And also from a regular perspective, regulatory perspective too. Uh, governments, there's, you know, right now, it's not legal to have a fully autonomous car on the road without a person. So that's going to have to be another hurdle that the industry gets over. But the main problem that companies are facing that's limiting them from getting to stage five soon enough is just the immense amount of data collection required to train the machines. It's it's machine learning. And for the machines to learn, they need tons of data and samples and maps and driving experience on the roads to build a good enough, I, I guess you could say model. And by model, I don't mean model of car, I mean model of an algorithm that can drive very well. You know, it's hard to put an accurate number on how much data is going to be needed, but you could reasonably estimate costs in the tens of billions in order that's going to, of what it's going to cost to gather all the data necessary and then to deploy it correctly to train the algorithms that go into the cars. So will it happen? Yes, but the time horizon for fully autonomous vehicles is more like five to 10 years than five to 10 months like the hype cycle might lead you to believe at least that's my opinion and that's that opinion is based off of other expert opinions in the space and from what i've done and through my own research now with all that said other news in the self-driving car space uh the Chinese tech giant Baidu, they're basically the Google of China, um, they announced that starting next year, they're going to be rolling out bus fleets that have no driver in the bus. It's just going to be a like a pod, and I think it seats up to 14 people. The buses will be what's called stage four, not stage five, like I said before. So stage four um, is what like means that it, you need 90% self-driving, but you still need that like 10% for an actual person to be in the car. Um, so how they're getting around this is because, well, let me give you, 
some some background, right? So buses are kind of an ideal early application of self-driving vehicles in general because they follow the same exact routes every single day. They don't stray from them, and they drive very slowly and cautiously. They're not going any – these won't be going faster than like 30 miles an hour. So it, obviously it's a big object. You don't want to get hit by a bus, but they're not going to be driving like 70 miles an hour. Um, so you only need a driver maybe 10% of the time. This is, you know, like if you're taking a left at an intersection or something, but if just for going straight line, stopping at a bus stop, you don't need a driver for that. So what they're doing or what they're going to try to do is have one person remotely controlling uh, or overseeing four or five buses at once rather than one person per bus. That's kind of the first stages that we'll see. I think they're, they said they're going to start with 100 buses in China and then go on from there once they get kind of data and feedback and see how well everything goes. Uh, but that's what I mean when I say we'll be seeing like stage three and stage four in the next two years, which is certainly a step up from having no autonomous vehicles at all. I think it'd be interesting. We'll see how it goes. Again, it could be delayed. Who knows? But I think, you know, they gave themselves a year time frame to they've been developing this for years, but they're giving themselves one more year to uh, set everything up. I think it definitely could happen. So that's kind of my self-driving cars update for the week. They're coming just not yet. Be a little more patient. All right. So the other big, or I wouldn't say big, but kind of, uh, in fact, this is more under the radar, but something I thought was very interesting. Um, Quartz Media, it's a media company, got purchased for $100 million, estimated somewhere around $100 million uh, recently. For those who don't know what Quartz is, it's a new type of media company. Think like Bloomberg meets Wall Street Journal meets TechCrunch is kind of how I would put it. Um, they focus on getting access to unique data and insights that their bigger competitors don't have, like the Wall Street Journal, and then they utilize those connections that they have. Like So they build up lots of connections with people at different companies, and then they utilize those connections and then other data uh, that they have as a means of gaining exposure for themselves. So when the Wall Street Journal or New York Times wants to write about something, they have to reference Quartz, and then that brings traffic to Quartz. So that's kind of how they've been growing. Um, in my opinion, I think this is a steal of an acquisition for $100 million. Now, I don't have access to Quartz's financial statements because they're a private company, but I don't think this is a revenue play for who's acquiring them. This is a talent connections data and platform play. Quartz does have a lot of users, but they're not obviously nearly the size of a Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg or anything like that, but they definitely do have um, a growing user base. But they have really a trove of digital assets. This is the situation where data is gold, you know, that type of thing. And it's not so much, I don't think that they have a lot of revenue yet, quite frankly, but they have tons of data and connections that are super, super valuable. Um, the company that's buying them is called UzaBase, U-Z-A base, I could play in the word user base. Um, they're a Chinese-based company, I believe they're based in Tokyo, or sorry, Chinese, Japanese-based company, I believe they're based in Tokyo. Um, they're a business intelligence company, so they have two main products, basically, they have a free news publication called News Picks, uh, which was directly competing with Quartz already, and then their main breadwinning product, the thing that they make most of their money on, is called Speeda, S-P-E-D, 
B-E-D-A, which is a business intelligence service that hedge funds and Fortune 500 companies and the like pay to get hyper-detailed insights and data, specifically in Asia, right? They're based in Japan. They have lots of data on emerging markets in like Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, Japan, obviously China. So they have um, lots of data and insights and lots of connections. So this is kind of a uh, natural acquisition target for Usabase to buy out Quartz. Um, they're kind of expanding more into the U.S. and getting more U.S. connections, and then they can tie together the connections they already have in uh, Asia, and then also they're buying out the Quartz platform that's going to be, their goal is to really become the next Bloomberg Wall Street Journal, the go-to place for uh, kind of higher-level business and intelligence news, if that makes sense. Um, so I think that uh, this is very, very good acquisition for them. I'll be curious to see how Quartz is able to expand now that they have the backing of a public company. I believe Usabase's um, market cap is at $1 billion. So I'll, I'll, we'll have to see how they do with more cash flow and how they're able to expand. I personally anticipate that in a few years, the $100 million acquisition price will look like a highway robbery. All right, so the final thing I want to talk about today are the, or I should say, is the excitement and setbacks of quantum computing. Quantum computing is very exciting because in theory, this new technology is going to allow us to solve problems that current computers are not able to and will never be able to solve um, things like genetic modification to cure diseases or creating new genes, mapping the Earth's climate to anticipate like hurricanes months in advance so we can prepare for them, or solving unexplained physics phenomena that we don't yet understand. Basically, quantum computing has the potential to solve some of mankind's you know, most biggest and most complex problems. But we are still far away from that happening. Um, I like to equate where we are now in quantum computing to the movie The Imitation Game, if you have, if for those of who have seen it. Um, it's basically Alan Turing played by Benedict Cumberbatch during World War II, if that rings a bell, and he was building one of the first computers back in the 1940s. And he's literally using, like, uh, tapes and flipping manual switches to make things work on the computer and the computer is like the size of a living room like it's huge that's where we are with quantum computing to give you an idea which in a way can kind of be a little disappointing because it means like oh we're not even close to where we, it could be but to me that's what makes it so exciting it think of all the progress we've made in the 70 years since that computer to now you know that could all happen again but on an even bigger scale with quantum computers uh now real quick for those of you who are wondering what the hell is a quantum computer you've come to the right place i'm not i'm not a physicist or a professor or computer scientist anything like that i'm just someone with uh boundless curiosity you could say so just keep that in mind but my uh explanation would be this uh, you know quantum computers in their simplest form are they're computers that take advantage of quantum physics properties hence the name quantum computers that uh, they allow us to take advantage of those properties to solve problems orders of magnitudes more complex than what normal computers can do. Um, that's my basic level explanation that I use to explain to everyone. Now, how it works is a bit more complicated. I might do a full episode on quantum computing in the future. We'll see. Um, but right now, like how they do it is they have to 
freeze not even freeze, but basically lower the temperature of chips down to literally like 0.1 Kelvin, which is uh, Kelvin is like it's the the coldest possible temperature. Zero Kelvin is the coldest possible temperature in the universe as far as physics allows. Um, so you have to freeze these chips down to that temperature and it works with what's called quantum bits or qubits. Anyways, it's a little complicated and for those who don't no quantum physics or computer science uh it's gonna go over your head it went over my head when i first learned about it too don't worry um, so i might do a full episode in the future we'll see but let's talk about the excitement and setbacks like i was saying before the excitement is that there are many large entities right from governments to big tech companies that are now and startups that are now pouring money into developing this new technology which means we can expect progress to continue at an exponential rate for the foreseeable future now not to get uh, geopolitical, but as technological arms races goes, it's kind of inevitable. Right now, the U.S. is the clear world leader in quantum computing, uh, but China is catching up quickly. Oh, good old China. Um, they actually announced a $10 billion investment into a research lab that's set to open in 2020. And when it does open in 2020, it will be the largest and most well-funded quantum computing lab in, in the world, basically. Uh, and this, of course, has caused many people in the U.S. in the quantum computing community from at like at uh, whether it's IBM and other tech companies that are developing as Google to also university research labs that are calling on the U.S. government to start a quantum program of its own. And it's actually working too. Uh, one of the main topics this summer and through the fall for the Senate and House will be to create a 10-year plan for quantum computing. That's kind of on the Senate's agenda this summer. Um, the Science, Space, and Technology Subcommittee of the House has already drafted budgets and legislation, so it looks like it's only a matter of time until something gets passed through. And it's a rare case where you know congressmen and congresswomen are uh, on both sides of the aisle are both pursuing this they're both for the pursuit of quantum computing it's more of a question of how committed are they and how much budget are they going to allocate are they going to be willing to allocate uh we'll have to wait and see for that but i would anticipate some legislation getting passed within the next six months or so basically before by the end of 2018 hopefully um yeah uh, but of course it's congress so it's 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 always hard to tell, and it, quite frankly, I don't think there's any people in Congress who really understand quantum computing, but hopefully there are people that will go in and explain it to them and make them understand how important it is. Now, for the setbacks, um, the main thing really is the job market for the industry. So to work on quantum computers, you need to have a few different traits, I guess you could say. So you need to have a strong understanding of computer science and advanced programming languages. Um, and you also need to be very good at electrical engineering. And you need to have a very strong understanding of quantum physics. Those are all traits that individually could land you a high class job. So finding people that have a cross section of all three of those things is very difficult because there's very few people out there who have all of those things. But if you're interested and you're one of them and you're interested in entering the space, there's probably a two to $300,000 salary, if not even more, waiting for you uh, if you can meet the foot fit that description of meeting all those requirements, uh, which is why I actually suspect that this lack of a candidate pool 
won't be a problem much longer because with salaries like that available for the taking, I am very confident that people will compete for them and start learning all of these things because there's plenty of people who hold at least one or two of those things. Like maybe they're a very good electrical engineer and computer scientist, so they have to just brush up on their quantum physics or they're a quantum physicist and now they have to kind of learn more about computer science, which if you're already a quantum physics person, I can't imagine it would be too difficult for you to also learn electrical engineering and quant and um you know, computer science, because I would say that those are actually on par, if not even a, li a little less complex than quantum physics itself. So I anticipate the candidate pool increasing a lot with salaries like that available. If you're a youngster or looking or someone looking to switch careers, maybe this is for you. You could go make some fat moolah working on developing technology of the future. Anyways, guys, that's it for today's episode. If you did enjoy, all I ask is that you share this episode with one person who you think would enjoy it, someone who you think could be making $300,000 a year developing quantum computers, maybe. Anyways, thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.